Before we enter our time of worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege together. We ask this morning that you would hear our hearts. Uh, you teach us that it is right to confess our sins before you, for our sins, uh, though paid in full by our Savior, the Son of God, who has come to redeem uh, the lost, who has come to quicken uh, sinners to himself. We, we relish and live and cherish that reality. But as your people, we know that as we try this fallen world, as we struggle with sin, that our sin is an affront to you. Um, our struggle with sin is still a means through which um, intimacy is lost. And so we ask that you would um, continuously mend and heal our hearts, strengthen us, build us up, um, quicken us for uh, the, the fight, and um, grant us enabling grace to walk in righteousness that we might be light into this world, that we might be a reflection of your glory, that we might hold you more intimately and gain on you and know you more fully moment by moment. Um, during this short little whisper of time that you've given us here as your people. Uh, so we ask that you would hear our hearts, hear our hearts cry to you, hear our confession of our great need for you and our longing to know you more fully. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we'll return to uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 32, which really uh, covers that whole last section there of Paul giving his uh, testimony, his defense, if you will, now before Agrippa, King Agrippa. So the title of this morning's message is Paul Before Agrippa Part 2. We'll kind of wrap up that big section that stretched from chapter end of chapter 25 all the way through chapter 26. So we'll be looking at verses 19 through 32 and really wrap up Paul's uh, of, um, defending himself now before Agrippa and him speaking directly to Agrippa, uh, Agrippa concerning uh, what has happened with him, what has transpired, and now this long journey of trials and defenses really, really beginning there in Jerusalem and now extending down to Caesarea. So if you will, join me in uh, verse 19, and we'll read through verse 19 to 32, kind of get the context there and then try to pick that back up and tie these two together um, to give kind of a, a, a running start at this whole big section here of Paul's defense before Agrippa. So look me there, beginning in verse 19. And again, Paul speaking here, he says, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jews, Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I utter words of sober truth. The king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, will you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up and the governor 
and Bernice. When we hear Bernice, it's just that reminder of their vileness. She's just always mentioned again and again. And Bernice. And those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man has been has not done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. King Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. And that ends Paul's defense before Agrippa. So again, we're looking at historical narrative here. And we're kind of tracking Paul as as he defends himself time and time again. Uh, originally, uh, kind of on the spot there, as the, the Jewish leadership and the Jewish mob kind of stirred up, or the Jewish leadership stirred up a, a mob there in Jerusalem and kind of has to give an impromptu defense of his actions, what he's doing there in the temple. He gives another impromptu defense at, uh, at the, the stairway going up to Fort Antonia, overlooking Jerusalem after now the Roman uh, guard has, has had to intervene on his behalf. Then he'll have a, a trial before the Sanhedrin there in Fort San Antonio, uh, or Antonio. Then he's taking away, and we see him first before uh, the, the governor there, first um, before Felix, right? And Felix just puts it off and puts it off. And why? Why would these Roman governors just put this off? And every one of them comes to the same conclusion rather quickly that this man's not guilty of any crime under Roman law. This is, this is a theological matter. This is infighting between the sect of Judaism. But they're frightened of the Jewish leaders, right? They're frightened of any uprising. They don't want to stir them up, particularly uh, Festus, who, or, or excuse me, Felix, who was much under their thumb, so much so that uh, he's removed over time for his ineptness. But in this time frame, he's left Paul two years now down in Caesarea, just holding him, just to try to uh, alleviate having to deal with the matter, knowing that he cannot charge this man under Roman law. And again, Paul's a Roman citizen, so that weighs heavy on the governors. They have to be careful with him. Yet, they want to appease the religious leaders and uh, keep kind of peace there in Jerusalem, which is a hotbed. It's, it's you know, much riots have stirred up there in recent years. So we get uh, to Festus. Festus replaces Felix in much of the same thing, except Festus is a more uh, adept governor and gets right to the matter. So he, he brings the religious leaders down and they have a trial finds all innocent in terms of Roman law, nothing that he's guilty of. But again, he's cautious, he's careful. He doesn't want to stir up the religious leaders. Well, Paul makes the appeal to Caesar. If you're not going to turn me loose, then I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to take my case to Caesar. And Festus says, to Caesar you will go. And there, of course, remember the background is Paul knows that he's going to Rome. So we're in a unique situation with Paul, right? Now, we know that the Lord guides us in all our situations of life. We know that God is sovereign over our lives, that there's no accidents in our lives. There's no uh, coincidence, really, if you will, in our lives. But we don't know ahead of time something like Paul knows right here, right? He knows for sure. And we've talked about it before, you know, nothing's really going to happen to us in our lives that brings our lives to an end, that we enter eternity till the Lord is finished with us here. Now, many things can transpire, good and bad, in our Christian walk. But until the Lord is done with us, nothing is going to befall us that will take our lives short of the Lord being finished with us, this side of glory. So we know that, and that should bring great comfort to us and should give us great boldness. But Paul had an extra layer here, right? And all these circumstances, he's sitting here two years waiting. But one thing's for sure. 
He knows he's going to Rome at some point. And now he's kind of made that appeal. So maybe that's going to be expedited a bit. Maybe that's going to speed up. But King Agrippa, who is just, uh, you know, he's kind of a puppet king. He, he's, he's under the Roman thumb. Uh, and he comes to pay his dues uh, to Festus, right? And which is a normal thing. So he comes to kind of uh, give homage to, to Festus there and pay his dues. And in the meanwhile, while he's there visiting, Festus takes the opportunity to say, hey, Agrippa, maybe you could um, hear this prisoner and maybe give me a little insight. I need to write an official letter to Rome, to Caesar. He's appealed to Caesar. Um, you're in the know with the, the Jewish customs and the Jewish law. Again, you know, now, now Agrippa's a Jewish king. Again, he's kind of just a proxy king, but he's a Jewish king. Under Roman uh, 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 um, under Rome's thumb and very much pro-Roman. This is this is also uh, to his liking. So it's not something that that he's really resisting against. He's not uh, really that much concerned with the Jewish people. He's concerned with himself, uh, his pride of life, and his comfort of life, and his power and his authority and. That seems to be enhanced by being very much pro-Roman, and such he is. But nonetheless, he agrees to maybe listen in and hear what Paul has to say. Um, and maybe he can give some insight. And uh, on last Lord's Day, when we gathered via Zoom, we got to, to uh, hear Paul's kind of initial defense there. And what does he do? What does he say? Remember? Paul goes right to the vision he had with the Lord Jesus Christ, does he not? So he kind of, he, he gives, and, and again, he understands. Now, Agrippa knows this. He's very, Agrippa's uh, familiar with everything that's going on here in the region. So he knows exactly who Paul is, knows exactly what has transpired, and everybody there knows Paul. Why? Paul was the number one persecutors, persecutor of Christians, right? So of all the Pharisees that were hunting down Christians and the Pharisaical leaders that were hunting down Christians, Paul was their hitman. He was their top guy. And so he says, he begins by saying, look, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the strictest Pharisee and the strictest sect of Pharisees. You found nobody that was more Pharisee-like than me. You know this. What did I do for my number one job as Pharisee of Pharisees? I hunted down Christians. I hunted them down and I persecuted them. I was opposed to everything concerning Jesus Christ. Everything related to the name of Jesus Christ, I persecuted to the nth degree with all my zeal and vigor as Pharisee of Pharisees. And one day, while I was traveling to Damascus Road, on my way to do what, y'all? Persecute Christians. A light from heaven, brighter than the noonday sun, shone down upon me. And I heard a voice saying to me, Paul or Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul says, who are you? And Jesus of Nazareth, who are you? And Paul goes on to tell them that the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Messiah, met with him profoundly that day and quickened him from walking as a persecutor in darkness of God's people to walking in the glorious light of Jesus Christ. And there he called Paul out and commissioned him and gave Paul this unique role of point man apostle to the Gentiles. And there at that meeting, don't lose sight of this, at that occasion at the vision of the resurrected savior there paul is appointed apostle of christ remember he's grafted in later this is the moment so don't lose sight of that 
This is where God Almighty, the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, the unique God man, the resurrected Messiah, met with Paul profoundly and commissioned him as an apostle of Christ. He is also an apostle of Christ. This is an authoritative role. Paul will write much of the New Testament. You know why? Because he was commissioned by Jesus Christ as an apostle of Christ. And point man to the Gentiles. So he has a unique calling. He has a unique salvation experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's no doubt. And here he says, as we pick up in verse 19, before Agrippa, who knows all this. So, King Agrippa, and he addresses, he addresses Agrippa directly from the very get-go. It's not that he is not concerned about Festus, but Agrippa knows. That's why Festus brought him in and says, you know, can you listen to this? So he just addresses him directly because he knows. And here first, when we think about this, he's been brought out, and this is Paul just now brought out, or going back and, and, and speaking uh, of that moment that he was brought out here in the context, brought out from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. Christ met with me, and he quickened me from spiritual death to spiritual light. And he says that it was by faith. You see that in verse 18, at the end of verse 18. Look how he strings this together. So he saved me and commissioned me to go back to both Jew and Gentile and carry the message of Jesus Christ, the one in whom I persecuted. Let's back up a little bit and just see this. So verse 16, but get up and stand to your feet. Now, this is Christ talking to Paul. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which I will appear to you. And here we go. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. It's going right back in. So he's been rescued from the trappings of this world under Satan's sway and sent right back into this world under Satan's sway with the gospel line. So I'll stop a moment because this is the very uh, uh, prefaces of of. The application I want to try to bring to us today and and what we see here in all of all of Acts and really kind of now culminated as we see Paul's life in this earth in in context here and scripture preserved for us by the Holy Spirit coming to an end. This exact same calling, devoid of some of the unique aspects of Paul's ministry and gifting, belongs to every genuine follower of Christ. We have been ransomed out of the world and sent right back in the world for this purpose. Yes, to be light. Yes, to live like Christians. That's extremely important. We talked about that a little bit in our morning study. But to carry the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. To speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. To speak to men and women concerning sin, death, and hell, and the glorious hope of the gospel, repentance, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to carry the gospel. So we have something in common, Paul. We're looking at all these amazing things here about Paul and now this testimony finally here before Agrippa, and he's soon going to be sent to Caesar. And we see all these things, and that's just, you know, this is all phenomenal. Amazing. And Paul is so unique. And yet, here we are with this purpose and looking at this that's primary to us because we have the exact same calling to go right back into the world and carry the gospel, just like Paul. And then in verse 18, we have the same calling. What is Paul to do? To open their eyes. Now, uh, that's that's in terms of him carrying the truth. He, can't, he doesn't have the power or authority to spiritually open their eyes. It must be a work of God. Obviously, the same is true for us. But this is what the message predicates. The truth 
through which God is pleased to save lost sinners, opening their spiritually blind eyes so that they may turn from darkness. Why? They may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. Here it is, by faith in me. Then we get to verse 19. And he says, it's by faith. It's by faith that this has transpired in my life. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. And there, let's start and look through this last little section. Paul's obedience. Let's start there, beginning in verse 19. Paul's obedience. So Paul here, Christ has broken into his life. Salvation. Yes, is this uh, is this unique context or a unique way? Yes, but it's no different in terms of effectual calling than any of our lives. Any of us here that sit as true, genuine followers of Christ, it's no different than me weeping by the side of my bed alone in a room at night, begging God to save me. Nobody else is away. It's no different. Effectual call is no different here. He broke into his life. And then, here's an application. And then, Paul says, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to this vision. Now, Christ brought the saving grace. Christ quickened him to faith. But here's uh, here's a, a natural overflow that Paul immediately puts before us here in his testimony. I did not prove disobedient. What's happened here? Paul's will has been captivated by Christ's sovereign grace. Paul's response to God's salvation is obedience. Obedience in God's commissioning of his life. So let me say this. Obedience is a mark of conversion, a mark of genuine saving faith. Obedience. First Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not become conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Romans 6.16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So Paul here informs them that everything that has happened is now stemming off of his obedience. So obedience is a marker. And we've been called from, we've been quickened from death to life and called as part of that reality to go forth and carry the gospel. That's, that should be just as normal to us as Christians as getting up and giving ourselves sustenance to eat. It's just part of who we are. That should be normal to us. Is it frightening? Is it challenging? Is it a spiritual battle? Yes. But it is no less part of our obedience. So what he's saying here in terms of his obedience is I've been obedient. To carry this gospel. That's why I'm here. Everything he's going to go on here and say. Everything that the Jewish leaders. Are accusing me of. And persecuting me for. Is my obedience to God's call on my life. Which continually culminates. In a proclamation. Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A calling of sinners. Sinners to repent. And believe on Christ. So Paul continues. He says in verse 20. But he kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem. And then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now. 
There's the call. There again is the gospel call. So he's calling people to repent, to turn from their sin and repent towards God, to turn. What is it to repent? We talked at length about that just uh, some, just a few Sundays ago. That is a turning. That is a turning away uh, from, uh, from this world and Satan's sway and turning to Christ, turning to God, repenting towards God and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's calling them to repent, which is part of who we are. That's part of our call as well, to go forth in obedience to the God's call upon our, to God's call upon our lives, just like Paul, and call sinners to repent, to turn from their way of either trying to work their way into God's graces or their way of trying to, to justify their way before their, their life before a holy God, turn from that, turn from those works, those denials, those efforts of justifying themselves in any way, turn from that and turn, repent of that, turn away from it to God and in sorrow of sin, repent towards God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, that's what, that's all that I've been doing. All the trouble that I'm in right now before you, Agrippa, Festus, is because I've been calling everybody, Jews, Gentiles, everybody, young, old, he'll say later, you know, those who are not so wealthy and those who are very wealthy, whoever God puts in front of me, I've been calling to repent towards God, and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been called. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in trouble. That's what, the, that's what they persecuted for me. That's what they drug me out of the temple for. And the same is true for us. So that's why this text is here. That's why we see these, why, why all these trials? I mean, because I, I have to, you know, Working through this, working through the, the end of this book is just, it's the same thing over and over. You know, and then of course, it's crossed your mind, I know. And it's crossed my, trust me, it crossed my mind too. What do I do with this over and over and over? Well, look, I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe look back in 10 years and there may be a, a plethora of things that I missed in the text. But there's one glaring truth that we need to get. It's just... The Spirit of God leaving this in here for us to see an example from Paul who has been faithful to minister the gospel over and over and over because that's a call that God has placed on all believers' lives in terms of our part of our obedience to God's gospel command of us. And so we see it in Paul in spades. And it's there to encourage us. It's there to remind us. It's there to embolden us and to convict us. Least we fall prey to the same thing some of these hearers are falling prey to. Just the trappings of the world. Just the busyness of the world. Just the occupation of trying to do this, buy that, pay this off. Get our kids here. Get our kids involved in that. Learn this. Learn that. The next thing that we just keep cooking off. This man is obsessed with God's call upon his life. And when we become obsessed with it, then things take priority. And the gospel goes to the front of the line. That's why we see Paul over and over. Because that's what he does. He rightly obeys God's call upon his life. And so he starts that way. Look, I was obedient. And then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> verse 21 again, for this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and they tried to put me to death. So note here, don't miss the obvious here. They're trying to put him to death because he's obeying God. He just said that. I obeyed what Christ commanded me to do. And because I obeyed what Christ commanded me to do, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Now, if we can say that, 
people might give us a lot of trouble about our beliefs, especially in this culture. As now it says, uh, being Christian is, is no longer vogue if you've missed that in the culture. You know, let me just give you a little news flash. That's, that's no longer vogue. But if people are going to belittle us or trouble us or attack us, God help us. May it be for clearly declaring the gospel of Christ rather than trying to gather up treasures of this world. May we, like Paul, God help us if it comes to that, say, look, everything that they tried to do to me, even put me to death, they did because I was obeying Jesus. It's exactly what he said. And Paul can say that. He's on trial before King Agrippa, and he says, everything they're trying to do to me, even kill me, is for one reason, because I'm obeying Jesus. Wouldn't that be... There's an application there for us. Wouldn't that be nice to say? There's a healthy walk. And we can honestly say before God and man, everything they're opposed to me about is my obedience to Jesus. Oh, that God would bring us there. And so he continues on in verse 22, and he says, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, Stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses has, uh, and Moses has uh, uh, said is going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Again, a wonderful application for us. So here Paul continues on and he says, the Jewish leaders, they tried to kill me, but they tried to kill me because I was just being obedient to Christ. And then what does he say? But God helped me. God helped me. So I'm here to this day. They would have killed me, but I'm here to this day because God helped me. You're here to this day and to every day to the end of your life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, because God has helped you. Everywhere you go in obedience to Christ to carry his gospel in every context, hostile, non-hostile, whatever the case may be, God will help you. God will help you. This is a glorious hope for that. This should send our hearts soaring. This should give us encouragement to walk in boldness like Paul. Paul's here given to us as an example not to frighten us and want us to, to skip through to something else, but to encourage us and to embolden us where we are frightened. And here's right where the Spirit of God takes us in the text. Paul said, God helped me. When you can get that in your Christian walk, wherever you are, when the enemy is right there breathing threats down your throat, you know how that goes in your mind. Look, you're not alone. I'm the same way. We have these things in common. It's scary. Oh, I need to, oh, I need to witness to my neighbor. And then you just come up with all the excuses. Then you just come up with, and, and the enemy is just right there in your ear, seemingly present right there in your ear about all your frailties and all your failures and all how you need to get this other stuff done. Know that God is right there helping you coming to your aid moment by moment in your Christian walk as you testify to the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of his gospel in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit that indwells you to the obedience of God's call upon your life. What a glorious, glorious hope here. God helped me. I obtained help from God. So I stand here to this day. I've testified to the lowly people, and I've testified now before kings and governors. Whoever God puts before me, wherever I go, he's helped me. The same is true for you. Wherever God takes you to testify of his glorious grace, he will help you. He will see you through. And no man will take your life until your Lord is finished with you. He will help you all the way through into glory. All the way. So Paul's looking at Agrippa right in the eye. He's speaking directly to him. 
He says, you're familiar with the claims of Christ. You know all this. And by the way, he goes on here and he says, you know what? I stated nothing but what the prophets of Moses said were going to take place. So he knows Agrippa's familiar with the text. He says, you know these things. You know about the claims of Christ. You know about the reality of Christians here. You know what happened to me. You know what happened to Christ. This is what, not 25 years now? I mean, it's not that far down the road even, historically speaking. They know about Christ and his claims. They know about this Jesus that was crucified very publicly out in the open. This didn't happen in a corner. Very publicly there in Jerusalem. They know about his claims. They know about his public resurrection. They know about the claims of, of his, uh, or excuse me, his, his public execution. They know about the claims of his resurrection. My goodness, what do, what do religious leaders do? Who did they pay off? Do you remember that? They paid off the guards. Why? They need to hush this thing up because there was lots of noise about the reality of Christ's resurrection. There were lots of eyewitnesses. This This is not even that far down the line here. You're talking 25 years. And so Paul says, look, you know, you know what has transpired. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then he brings them back to this profound reality that we don't lose sight of here. I've spoken nothing but what the prophets and Moses has said, right? Psalm 22, Psalm 53. And Christ is going to suffer. He's going to die in a 20 death and he's going to be resurrected, validating everything that he said about himself, validating that he is the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah, the resurrected one. And for us, Look, it's become, uh, again, very inappropriate in our culture to make scriptural claims of objective truth. But that's exactly what we need to learn from Paul here. We need to take exactly what the prophets and Moses said. We need to take exactly what the New Testament writers have said. We need to proclaim the gospel of Scripture clearly and winsomely and boldly. We don't need to try to add or take away. We need to learn from Paul and say exactly what the Bible says. We need to be able to go out there and say, this is the word of God. This is the revelation of God. This is a supernatural text. This is God's declaration of himself. This is the truth of the promised Messiah. This is a book that speaks of historical truths over and over and over, pointing to a promised Messiah that we claim to you this day. We need to take the Bible, open it up before uh, lost sinners, and proclaim the gospel truth. Say what the text says. My goodness, Our culture is on the verge of shaming you into not taking the text and boldly proclaiming it. Why? Why? Because a foolish, lost, secular man or woman says you're full of nonsense believing some arcane old text? When your God who has saved you, has called you to take his word, trust his word, and use his word to minister in his name. Find again, courage from Paul here. Take the text and minister the gospel truth. There's already rumblings in one area uh, pertaining to, well, kind of the, the, the opening for this has been a conversion therapy, which again, conversion therapy speaking in terms of of homosexuality or same-sex attraction and conversion therapy and regarding these issues has been a horrible thing in a lot of ways. And it's been a lot of abuse has been uh, transpired under, under the umbrella of conversion therapy. But that language has now been used as a springboard to oppose biblical counseling. So there's an attempt to try to link that and then go from there to biblical counseling and say, you can't take scripture and say that homosexuality is a sin. 
by that same-sex attraction is sinful. There's already talk of trying to bring legislation in certain parts of our country where that is against the law. Not only for you to say to someone to take God's word, which is Paul, which Paul here, which we see that the, the spirit of God that has inspired the writer of scripture here, Luke, to put in this for us in God's word. This is exactly what we are to do. Just like Paul, go take the word of God and minister the gospel truth. And you're living in a culture that now is saying in certain degree to certain areas, at least for now, that you can't take the word of God and minister truth. We're going to outlaw that. And not only for you to take it into the public forum, but you can't tell your children about the reality of sin concerning same-sex attraction, homosexual relationship. Now, that's just what's in our current cultural climate. So I will say to you, uh, uh, is it going to stop there? Dear Christian, will it stop there? Of course not. So these things are not, these are spiritual realities that come in spiritual battles between a fallen world and a glorious Savior. That's real and spiritual and profound and powerful. And the winsome nature of fallen man cannot dictate to you as a follower of Christ. We'll have to trust our Lord in terms of what we are to do in obedience. Because it may not be easy and comfortable and acceptable with the culture around you as it has been prior. And that cannot dictate to you. Those circumstances cannot dictate to you or I. The truth of Scripture must dictate to us. So be encouraged by Paul here, who says straightforwardly, I didn't say anything other than what the prophets and Moses said concerning Christ. And there we're on good ground. My goodness, don't let a fallen culture Take the word of God out of your mouth. So he's been a faithful witness to small and great, faithful witness to both. And he's talked from the authority of Scripture. And maybe I, by way of encouragement, say we should do the same. We should do the same. And in case you're wondering, let me just say, before we move on to verse 24, to, to Festus remark here. Look there in verse 23 where it says that, that Christ would suffer. Now, this is what he's pointing back to what the prophets of Moses said, that Christ would suffer. We understand that to be uh, his death on the cross, his atoning death, and that he would be resurrected from the dead. The evidence, the evidence in space and time, the historical evidence that Christ is everything that he said he was, the promised Messiah, the one who would make atonement for sinners, the one who would, who would be a sacrificial atoning uh, 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 atonement for sinners to their, the, the, the sin of those who repent and believe would be borne out in his body and his righteousness would be imputed into their account. That spiritual exchange would take place. That's what he's saying. But there he would suffer and the resurrection would be evidence that his atonement was full and true. The unique God, man. The one atonement between sinful man and holy God. But then it goes on to say that he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So not first historically, and we would know that. That might be what, if you read that, you say, well, what's being said there? That gives me a little trouble. It's not first historically. They were talking about the promised Messiah earlier, and they were talking about the resurrection earlier. We saw that in the Old Testament. That's what Paul was pointing back to. Hey, look, I just said what the prophets have already said. I said what Moses has already said. They were pointing to this promised Messiah, and certainly the resurrection is built into that. It's baked into the truth. What he's saying here is first in preeminence. So in other words, when Christ in history, the historical Christ was really resurrected, that was in time, space and time that God created, that's linear. So in real space and real time that God created and placed his Messiah, there was a point. In a real area, amongst real people, that this Jesus was resurrected. And he says, from that point on, there stands the marker of all of history. That's what he's saying. That's preeminent. 
now. That's the first witness in terms of all the witnesses that were looking before, looking towards that. Now it's transpired. So now the Lord of glory, the king of salvation has now been resurrected. And all the promises about the Messiah are now full and true in Christ. All those looking forward to that moment in time, trusting the Messiah. All those like us now looking back to that moment in time, trusting Messiah. That moment of time in God's time and God's creation. Then the unique God man became first preeminent and testimony of the gospel in that now he is the conqueror of death. He is the Lord of life. And all hope is now culminated in his salvation that has been satisfied in space and time. The resurrection being the validation of it all. Does that make sense? So that's just us always going on with that first there. So now let's look at Festus. Let's move on and look at Festus' remarks uh, here. Verse 24. So while Paul, he's not even finished it. That was great, but he's not even done. He could have said more. He's probably close to finish, don't you think? Because, I mean, he's just laying it out there. He's just hammering it out. But nonetheless, he gets cut off. It says, while he was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Okay, there it is. Everybody's not just going to fall down and say how wonderful of a testimony that was, brother, sister. You're out of your cotton-picking mind. He acknowledges the brilliance of Paul here, right? Your great learning has driven you mad. You're crazy. What are we seeing here? What is that? Look, Festus, one, he has a problem with the resurrection. So that's where that, that turned him off right away. You know, I mean, he's, he's roaming through and through, and that's, you know, he's full of superstitions, but that resurrection thing bothers him. But the truth is trodden underfoot by his pride. That's it. That's, that's a spiritual work that God has to do. That's not your job. It's not Paul, it was not Paul's job. Paul was doing his job. He's proclaiming truth clearly, winsomely, boldly, continuously. And he just never lets off the gas. That's our job. That's the struggle that we have, that, that we need to be encouraged by Paul here. But here this pagan comes along, and, and it's just his pride. So he's trotting the truth underfoot by his pride. But then Paul responds. In verse 25, Paul says, I am um, not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but I utter words of sober truth. Now, again, he's respectful. And we talked about that a little earlier as well uh, this morning in, in our morning Bible study, just the respect for, for the king from, from uh, David to Saul. And so he has respect for the office here. So, again, uh, Paul's respectful. You know, he's, he's, that's, that's the thing. His, his heart's always tender. Well, another thing we just just you know, celebrate and rejoice in concerning Paul. We're looking at him and learning and trying to see what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives as, as we want to see these great truths and see these men and women of God and, and, and be encouraged by them and implement them. Um, Paul's just, I mean, his heart just overflows with compassion. He's never, I mean, you know, he's fiery, but he's never angry and hateful or self-righteous. And that's something we want to fight against. You don't see that here. Look, he's, he's respectful to the office. You know, because they, they, you know, they, they, they cut us off or they, they, they mock us a little bit. You know, right, sorry, let me get on the rest of Tell you the gospel. You deserve to hear anything. We can't. That's not who we are in Christ. And we never see that in Paul. Paul's never, his heart is always full of love and compassion for these folks. He aches for them. And all that we would catch that, all their hearts would ache, that we wouldn't be cold and just jaded and just kind of put off by the lost around us or how they might treat us. So he has respect for the office. You know, he's kind to him because, I mean, you know, let's face it, offense has kind of popped off at him here. And Paul just took it. Just took it. It didn't bother him. It shouldn't bother us. 
Okay. So he goes on here and he says, no, I'm uttering words of sober truth. There's an interesting term that's used here. It's really a philosophical term, the original language. Um, and it speaks to, it's a term that, that, that speaks to addressing the issue of dealing with relationship between humanity and deity. It's really connected specifically to that concept philosophically. He, he drew out a philosophical term from the Greek. But it's talking about speaking truth and wisdom to that, to that particular subject of man's relationship to deity. And so he picked out a very interesting term here. And so he's saying, you know what? Fess is, I'm not out of my mind. Actually, I'm speaking sober wisdom to you about the relationship between God and man. I'm speaking with the utmost wisdom concerning God and man. Sophosine. Sophie, Sophia. It's got the root word there for wisdom. So it's just this unique little term that Paul picked out. And he says, I'm not mad at all. I'm not out of my mind at all. I'm telling you with full wisdom and truth exactly how sinful man can be in right relationship with holy God. And he says it with gentleness and compassion and kindness. All Festus you know, knew was to scoff at what he did. He didn't understand it. So if he didn't understand what he'd heard, all he does, all he does is do is scoff at it. He can acknowledge his brilliance, you know, Paul, but, but he has to scoff at it. Why? Satan has blinded his mind. You're in a spiritual battle. Paul understands that he's in a spiritual battle here. He doesn't take these things personally, nor should we. Compassion fills his heart. And he just, and he just gets right to the truth of it. I'm saying nothing but what's, what Scripture has, told, has taught me, and I'm telling you exactly how it is to be in right relationship with a holy God. He just gets right back to the gospel. He just gets right back to the truth. He doesn't get deterred by the, by the name calling or the slandering or whatever the case may be. It's right back at it. This man is far removed from being moved by the truth. It doesn't deter Paul. So what can we do here? Let, let's, let's, us, let's pray as well that God will make us clear on doctrine, right? It's clear. Whatever, you know, a secular world might throw at us, we're clear on the gospel. Paul was just always on point. Boom, boom, boom. Proclaim it. We ask God to help us understand it, to obey it, and to articulate it with tender hearts. When we look here at Paul and Festus, he just, he just snapped, he just, he just snapped at him, he just popped off at him. Has that ever happened to you? Well, it has, if it hasn't, it will. A lot. So let's take a little application here. Just that we too, like Paul, pray that God would help us to understand doctrine. That we, we just, whatever comes, we're clear with it. We're precise. We're stay on point. That we understand it. That it penetrates our heart. That we can articulate it. It doesn't take, look, Paul's brilliant, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It does take a tender heart. It does take that. A tender heart is a heart that's, that's bent towards obedience, and that's what we're called to, to be obedient to our Lord. And that part of that obedience is carrying the gospel. And part of carrying the gospel rightly for us is carrying it to those who have been marvelously saved out of, out of sin and brought into glorious life. Part of how we are our tremendous witnesses to this world is that we were in those same shoes. Now, some of us, you know, God was gracious to us and, and saved us early in life, and that's wonderful, and that's glorious. That's not the point. We're born sinners. And whether we had all the emotional ties to that is really not the issue. The issue is knowing the doctrinal truth. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and God has ransomed us out and given us a calling to go forth and carry this glorious gospel to sinners like us. 
So that's who we are. May, may God keep our hearts tender in that regard, obedient and tender. Again, I don't want to belabor it, but Paul just didn't get angry. And there's something for us here in that. See that Paul's response to this, to this lashing out. I know in my heart, there's times I've missed that. They lashed out and I was like, nope. And it's not us. Let's learn from Paul. We need to pray. We would respond in kind. He just defended the word of God. He didn't get angry, just defended the word of God. He didn't flaunt his wisdom. You didn't hear anything about that. Isn't that great? Paul was brief. Isn't that great? Well, yes. Festus, you're right to notice that. I am rather astute. Went right by it. Right to the gospel. Right. Ah, he didn't string Festus along in his foolishness. He just left him with the weight of the gospel. He didn't play that game. He just left him with the weight of the gospel. It's the gospel that changes hearts. Stay there. Stay there. He goes on, he says, well, you know, the king, he knows all about these matters in verse 26. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice for they did for, for they, excuse me, for this had not been done in a corner. Now he's talking about the life, death and resurrection of Christ. He says, well, and he goes right to Agrippa. So that means he just left Festus with the weight of the gospel with a tender heart. And he goes right to Agrippa. You know exactly what I'm saying, right, Ken? You know. Festus, nothing, nothing, nothing here is lost on Agrippa. He knows exactly. None of this happened in the corner. So it's all out in the open. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. So he turns to Agrippa. He knows Agrippa is aware of the law and the prophets. He knows that he's aware of the things that's been spoken about the Messiah. He knows that Jesus was crucified. He knows about the open claims of his resurrection. So this is common knowledge. And that's the point he's making. And then he's going to speak directly to Agrippa. I mean, he's just, the, the guy is right on point. He just, and again, it's with tenderness. He just hits Festus with the reality of it. Doesn't go on about himself. Doesn't, doesn't drag Festus out into some long debate. He just, he just leaves him with it. And he directs his attention to Agrippa, who he knows has a little more light. And now he's just going to come and bring the same truth right to Agrippa's doorstep here. And Agrippa's going to come with a question. So let's see Agrippa's question here in verses 27 through 32. So then he goes to him. He says, Lee Spessa says, well, Agrippa knows all this, right, King? And then he asks him a question in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? <laughs> Great question. You know, you can ask that too. Do you believe scripture? It's God's word. And Agrippa did to a degree. I mean, it, it, he was one of those guys where if you just had the Old Testament, you say, well, that's, that is the word of God. You know, he had that much superstition sort of kind of, you know, that vague belief about it. Well, yeah, that, that's God's word. That's scripture. All the truths in there concerning Messiah do not resonate with him, but he would just, you know, he has enough superstition to have to kind of fear the scripture. So all the Old Testament for Agrippa would have been, well, yeah, that's scripture. We have those people, right? We know that. This is, this is where he's coming from. Well, yes. But then Paul doesn't leave him there. He says, well, if you believe the prophets, basically Paul is saying, then Jesus is the Messiah. Because what I'm saying to you is what the prophets and Moses have said. I'm not saying anything else. I'm telling you what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Do you believe the prophets? Jesus is the Messiah. If you believe the prophets, Jesus is the Messiah. That's kind of where he's going with it. And so then, Agrippa aware of this, and boy, now he's trying to get, he's trying to just dodge this bullet. So then in verse 28, Agrippa replies to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. So it's a very sarcastic response. So it's not saying, you know, you're probably going to make me a Christian in a short time. 
I haven't pondered any of that. That's amazing. It's not what he's saying. He's speaking in arrogance. Again, again, the pride of life of Agrippa here saying, oh, Paul, you think just with, just with that, do I believe the prophets? Yeah, I'm just going to believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah now if I just believe the prophets. If I believe, if I believe the scripture, you think you're going to make me a Christian that short a period of time? So basically he's saying, you're kidding me. And again, it's a great pride on display. It's the pride of life on display. But listen to Paul's heart. We're thinking about our obedience to evangelism specifically, because that's what Paul's doing here. Two guys just just cut them off at the root. Same same heart, same tenderness, same response. Gentle with, with, uh, with Festus. And he's going to be gentle with the grip. But listen to Paul's heart here. Look at this. In verse 29, Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Heart. What a heart, y'all. This is here for us. God take this for our baby. God take this and mold this into us. What a heart! I am far from there a lot. I'm just, you know I'm the mailman here. It's my role in this church. I deliver the mail. You know I can't be from a high horse. This has to resonate with me first. I have major major prayer work to do here. Don't 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 misunderstand me. But look at this. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with this text? We're a family. God's together. God's helped us. We're here. God's helped us. We have an obedience to reckon with here. We have a calling. We have a commission. We have a gospel to carry. And look at Paul. Because maybe at Festus, I'm done. But by Agrippa, I'm really done. Now, Paul, here's the abdication. Pray to be like Paul. This heart, this is just a gospel heart. It's like boom, boom, boom. Beating for these men to know the Lord. Beating for these men to know repentance. Beating for these men to repent and believe on Christ. So whether it's a long time or a short time, not only you, but everyone here, that you might become just like me. Now, here's the great irony of the picture. Paul's in chains there physically, and he, you can see he's holding them up. I don't want you to have chains. This is not fun. I don't want this for you. But what you can't see is I'm free. This is not who I am. I'm free. You're enslaved to sin. I want you to be free. I want you to be free like me. Oh, to God, that you could be free like me. I don't want you to have these chains, but I want you to be free. Here's the, here's the great irony in the text. Paul's the free man. Paul's free. You're looking at enslaved, wealthy, arrogant, well-to-do, self-absorbed, self-righteous sinners outside of right relationship with the holy God. And you got tawdry, pitiful, chained up little Paul right there. And on the outside, one looks lavish and the other looks bad. But in reality, one is free and the other's enslaved. But this free man longs to see them set free from their sin. It's his heart. Oh, if love to God, I would if you could be like me. At least these chains. I don't see it is his heart, his heart wasn't there, right? He didn't say, 
there's a, you don't want to deserve to be in these chains, not me. You should have more. I'm innocent. I've gone through three trials now. I've been sitting here two years. You deserve it. You lie, cheat, and steal your way through life. Amen, somebody. Amen, political climate. We've had some of the thoughts. His heart. Oh, if you could be like me. At least these chains. So there he goes. And there we're left with it. And they stand up there in verse 30. And they converse with one another. They say, well, you know what? He certainly doesn't deserve death. He doesn't even deserve imprisonment. And then in their great pomp and circumstance, Agrippa says to Festus, you know, this man could be set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now, they could have set him free right then. They could. He hasn't written a letter. He hasn't written an official document. Nothing's transpired. They could set him free. But since he appealed, you know, we're going to send him on up. And that'll look good for Festus, right? He gets to write an official document. He sends them on up. And that'll look good. So, so here they remain in their sinful arrogance. But what's really going on behind the scenes? What does Paul already know? He's going to Rome anyway. He's going to Rome no matter what. This doesn't phase Paul one bit. And even if he didn't know he would, he would, that he was going to Rome, it still wouldn't phase him. You see his heart. Oh, that we pray to have a heart like this. And we would pray to have a heart like this concerning the lost around us. And here I want to leave you with this application. And and it's tough because it is so emotional. We want to see people come to Christ. But here they didn't. And we're not in control of that. They may not. And don't let that dictate to you. It's the faithfulness here. Paul was never deterred. He's, uh, when he's, he speaks to Festus, and Festus just cuts him off. And Paul then goes right to Agrippa, and Agrippa just cuts him off. And Paul's never deterred. And even and when they ask him, and when they inquire about him, he says, man, if you could just be like, oh, I would give anything if you could be like me, at least these chains. Our role is to be faithful, is to be obedient. God said we can't say we can't do the saving. And sometimes if we long for hearts ache for them, of course we want to see them bow down and repent, but that's not in our hands. And we can trust the sovereign hand of God who will protect us all the way through. Our role is obedience. Our calling is obedience. Our calling is faithfulness. Note here, Paul didn't see any marvelous responses of faith. Each one of them just shut him down quick. But he's not deterred. So take that application as well. Don't be deterred. Continue to ask God to soften your heart and give you an obedience to long to go out and carry his gospel to a lost world because you long to see them like you. Saved and forgiven. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. For you alone are glorious. What a a marvelous uh, testimony. What a marvelous defense. Uh, What a marvelous piece of scripture. And what are we to do with it? Um, We ask that you would have mercy on us. Help us to take these truths and and to apply them to our lives. uh, To see um, our our call to obedience is the same as Paul's. Um, To see our strength and our protection comes from you. And to see... um, our call is to be faithful uh, and leave the circumstances and the um, consequences to you. So we ask that you'd help us to do this, that you would give us boldness, you would give us courage. The things that we see in Paul, uh, we ask that uh, would manifest in us as the spirit of God dwells us and moves us as well. And we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.